Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Antonsen. Today's guest on the show is Sebastian Younger. Sebastian is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He wrote The Perfect Storm, Fire, A Death in Belmont, War, Tribe, and Freedom. Tribe and Freedom are two of my favorite books. He is an award-winning journalist and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and a special correspondent at ABC News. He is also a documentary filmmaker whose debut film, Restrepo, was nominated for an Academy Award and it actually won the grand prize at Sundance. So needless to say, I was incredibly excited when Sebastian agreed to come on the show. And the reason that I asked Sebastian, the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is because Tribe is a very important book for me. When I had to move back from Costa Rica, it was this incredible kind of sense of loss. And I didn't know what that loss was really. And Tribe helped me make sense of that in a way. Moving from a small community somewhere very tribal where you know everybody to a much bigger city where it was this anonymity and almost a sense of um, not belonging. And, you know, I read Tribe a number of times during that process and uh, it's amazing. And his new book, Freedom, is actually something that I think will resonate with everyone listening to the show and it chronicles free people and the cost of freedom and what freedom is. I'll let Sebastian tell it in his own words on the show. Um, and then we have a conversation about how to experience that within the confines of our modern day society. And so this is not a foiling podcast, but most, if not all of the themes will be applicable to the vast majority of people listening. Um, the other part of the reason that I wanted to have Sebastian on the show is because as a war journalist, he experienced many very heavy situations. And we're always exploring and talking to folks like Kai Lenny, Laird Hamilton, who's the next guest on the show. I've already recorded that one. Um, but trying to understand what drives folks to seek out those experiences and how they process those experiences, what's attractive about them. And Sebastian was very candid. There, were, there was nothing off limits uh, on this podcast. And he was very candid about the way that he relates to those experiences and also about taking risk at different stages of your life, something that he's given a lot of thought to. So I don't want to uh, get into many of those now b before the show, but um, I think you guys are going to love it. Um, hit me with questions, comments, feedback. I really want to understand what you guys think about kind of the new direction that we're taking this. So far, the feedback has been great. If there are other folks that you'd like me to seek out and try to get on the show, I you know would love to hear about it and what themes you're finding um, most relevant to you. So, all right, 2023, the year is sending it. Hope you guys are out there doing amazing things in the water and... Sebastian, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. 
I've been really excited to do this. And it's it's funny, Sebastian, because I don't really, I've done hundreds of podcasts and I don't really ever get nervous. But when we started talking about this, I started getting a little apprehensive, a little bit of anxiety, just because I've been such a, a fan of yours now going back to the perfect storm it was the first audio book we listened to as a family, um, which is really cool. So, so wow. I'm really excited to do this and I hope, I hope it's fun for you as well. Well, thank you. I'm definitely not worth getting nervous over, uh, <laughs> particularly if you've ridden the 20 foot wave. Like I, I would pick the wave over me any day, but um, anyway, thank you. Uh different type of consequence, I guess. Yes. Um, so, we were connected through a shared really close friend, Josh Waitskin. And when I think about the group of Josh's friends that I have become friends with over the years, who I'm sure you're friends with a lot of them as well, the one commonality, because they tend to be across, you know, all ranges of types of folks and interests, but the one commonality is they're all generally all in on whatever they're doing. And when I look at your career, you know, the way that you took on the perfect storm, how you were embedded and, and the lengths that you went to to tell an accurate story, I think that you might be the most all in of everyone I've met in that circle. How do you relate to that term? And when did you realize, and I don't know if it's something you ever think about, but that that's the way that you live life is, is full immersion. Well, you know, I have a different... Um some some ways a different perspective because my professional peer group are i'm no longer a war reporter but i was for a long time so my professional peer group at the time were other war reporters other foreign correspondents and so that you know that's my that's my norm and so where i fell in terms of risk taking in terms of immersion where i fell in that spectrum was actually really quite really towards the light end uh, I mean, it's all it's all relative. And I knew guys and some women who were just like so unbelievably hardcore in the in the risks that they would take in the investment. Like, I mean, I knew a guy who just went off to Iraq and spent two years in Baghdad. I mean, you know, working for The New York Times, but like two years. Right. I never did that. I would be gone for a month or two at a time, you know, and then come back here. And so for me, I'm at the sort of like lightweight ends of the spectrum of foreign of the foreign reporters that I know. And, you know, I've I've almost been killed a few times. I've had amazing, hairy, wonderful, beautiful experiences. I mean, I you know, whatever. I'm satisfied with what I have done. But when I turn and look at the, you know, when I turn and look at the giants of the profession, I'm like, oh, man, you're still you're not you don't even come up to their knee, you know, so. You know, I, so that for me, I, you know, I'm very, very humble about it because I, I know where I sort of rank with others and uh, in my profession and I wouldn't want their lives, you know, so I made a conscious choice, right. but just so that just to sort of get that on the table there. But that that said, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to sound sort of like you know, manufacture some sort of faux philosophy, but as far as we know, we only get one life and that life happens moment by moment and you can't reconnect to the past except in very abstract ways you have no idea what the future is and really all you get is right now and if you're not all in right now you're cheating yourself and you know one of the reasons i don't have a smartphone i have a flip phone is is that i see people get sucked out of the current moment 
out of the life they're actually living and sucked into their phone, which is a bunch of pixels on this friggin' screen, you know? And I'm like, I'm sorry, you just traded down. I mean, you just like gave up something amazing for something mundane. What are you, why are you doing that? And so that, so, you know, in terms of all in, it, 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 I mean, that refers to risk-taking. It also just refers to being, you know, a human animal in the present moment and fully and wonder, wondrously aware of your surroundings. So if that's your philosophy and there is just one life to live, does that change the way that you take risk? Does it make it more or less precious? How do you see that with that philosophy um, when you're putting yourself in life-threatening situations? Yeah. And I should say, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure I have a philosophy that there's only one life to live. There's just no evidence to the contrary. Right. So I, you know, I, I mean, if they, we, if we come up with some pretty good proof of, you know, previous or future lives, I'm great. You know, like that's interesting, but we don't have that yet or and may never. So, uh, you know, what, what I would say is that I'm an, you know, I studied anthropology in college. I, I, I look at humans in those terms through that, through that lens and life, I mean, the things, the, the the behaviors that are adaptive change over the course of your life, right? So if, and I'm a man, you know, I'm a man, I'm only going to speak to the male experience, but I'll do so unabashedly. Uh, for young men, it's very, very adaptive to take risks and become expert in things. I mean, it, it gains the respect of your male peers. That in turn translates into female attention female attention translates into, you know, sort of sexual access and eventually reproducing, you know, having children, offspring, et cetera, the whole Darwinian selection process, you know, that all kicks into gear and being risk-taking and, and accomplished as a young male is extremely adaptive. Adaptive. It's a, it's, it's a very good strategy in sort of evolutionary terms, right? So, so if you are doing those kinds of behaviors in your 20s, it makes enormous sense, even though you statistically you'll have six the, the mortality rate from accidents and violence for young men is six times what it is for young women, typically. Right. So there are risks involved in this, but there are also enormous rewards. And so, it you know, at 25, it makes a kind of evolutionary sense to be risk taking, to throw yourself all in to combat, to surfing to whatever whatever to, to whatever it is right uh those same behaviors at 60 i have two young children i, I came late in life but i'm blessed like age 6 eight, two little girls age 6 and age 3 like those same behaviors at my age would be pathetic right they're like what are you doing you're risking your children's future so that you can have a th so you can prove your you prove your manhood or have a th you know thrill like so so what you know what I would say is you have to be attuned to where you're at in your life and that sort of obsessive throwing yourself into a task even a dangerous task is totally adaptive and natural and human at one age and then really maladaptive at a, at a different age and you have to and you know likewise if you were sort of like uh, a tw 24 year old man who's a sort of quiet homebody who never takes a risk like there's something wrong there Right. And so I, anyway, so that's the for me, it's hard to generalize about the human lifespan because it requires such different things and such different things makes make us happy and feel meaningful at different ages. I'm thinking about that in the context of surfers and 
and maybe I should ex- go a little bit broader than just surfers and people that have chosen to live life very close to a passion. And I think that, and a theme on this show has been, you know, Dave Kalama has been on the show a number of times. He's a legendary waterman. Laird Hamilton's coming on actually this week. And it's been interesting to watch the transitions in their careers as they have gotten older. And Dave and I have talked about this at length in just that the the game changes. They, you can't get away from the ocean, you know, away from the passion. But but the games that they're playing are a little bit different. You know, not chasing the hundred foot wave anymore, but but not giving up. And surfing is one of those beautiful things where you can do that. There are other games to play. One of the themes that I find, though, in your work has been the difficulty that soldiers have coming home. And I feel like the difference there is that soldiers are 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 trained and then immersed in an incredibly intense situation that they and and I have no personal experience on this whatsoever. So please correct me if I'm wrong in, in anything that I'm saying here. But they don't get to pick and choose when they're going to have those experiences. And then one day it's just over and you no longer have access to those experiences where it's probably more like a retiring NFL player, not talking about any of the trauma that happens in war. I'm talking about the experience, the adrenaline. Um, surfers get to maintain that. And in in war, that's cut off. And I is do you how much of the problem do you think of coming home has to do with the with the forced um, separation from that experience? Well, I think it's very complex. Like a, a quarter of Peace Corps volunteers suffer significant depression when they come home. So one of the, you know, and they're not adrenaline quotes. I'm going to put this in quotes, adrenaline junkies, which is actually a phrase I don't like very much, but, I, but I don't uh, right. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a useful, it's a useful phrase, but inaccurate. But anyway, so, you know, Peace Corps volunteers, the thing that they, the, 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 the thing that troubles them is that they are, you know, humans are, we have evolved to live in close, fairly small communities of co-survivors, right? Like 30, 40, 50 people typically for most of the 200,000 years of our existence. And so we are naturally sort of like adapted and wired, to hardwired to relate very effectively to groups of that size. And when you find yourself in a group of that size, it's extremely gratifying, right? And a platoon happens to be about 50 men. I mean, in my case, it was all men because it was combat. So all you get dropped into that environment and, you know, it just resonates in this deep sort of ancient level, like, oh, this feels right. And one of the things about the the risk of combat, which makes it very, very different from sort of high performance sports like surfing, is that it's not about you. It's about everybody else, right? Your job is to risk your life to safeguard everyone else. And if everyone feels that way, everyone ends up being safer. It's not about your own experience. You are there to do your job in the platoon, whether it's manning the radio or or firing seven to 10 round bursts on the M240 Bravo during a firefight, whatever it is. Your job is to perform that function heedless of your own safety, right? And there is something about that contract with other people, which is profound and meaningful and deeply missed when you give back to the society where there really are no survival challenges to speak of for most people. And you certainly don't need other people to survive your day, to survive your week, your month, your life, right? And so that's what I think soldiers miss is the communality, the interdependence 
of a small group of people in an adversarial environment. And um, is there an adrenaline component co to combat? Absolutely, right. I mean, uh, clearly, and, and that adrenaline component, I'm sure pops up in big wave surfing and in logging and, you know, all kinds of dangerous pursuits, whether they be sports or dangerous jobs, right? But, and the, yeah, of course, we're, you know, adrenaline, our, our positive response to adrenaline itself is adaptive. It, it, it makes us able to do dangerous things and find them thrilling rather than terrifying. That's clearly adaptive, right? But, but I think the more profound loss for soldiers when they come back, the more profound thing that leaves them disoriented and confused and frankly depressed and even suicidal is that they're suddenly, they don't have a community around them that is worth sacrificing themselves for, worth, worth risking their lives for, right? Um, one of the wonderful things about having a family is that it's so clear on this very deep level, like my safety is inconsequential compared to the safety of my children. Like, I, I mean, it's just not even a, something that bears thinking about, right? Like if they, if we, if they were in danger, it wouldn't cross my mind to not get between them and the danger, no matter what happened to me, right? And and there's that loss of self in the service of others is a, a, such a profound experience. It borders, and I'm an atheist, but I would say it borders on the mystical, it borders on the religious. And uh, I mean, of course, in religion, there's a loss of self vis-a-vis -vis God, right? I mean, that's the point of religion, of meditation, of all Buddhism, of all that stuff. Well, you can get taste of that in combat. You can get taste of that as a uh, as a parent, and you know, one of the things I would say about these really intense sports, I mean, what's that guy's name who climbed El Capitan, unroped, free solo, that dude, right? Like, oh, my God, what a thing. What an extraordinary thing. That's not about other people. That's about him. And and so you do have to sort of like create two slightly different categories of risk taking, because I think they're profoundly different in their sort of human experience. It's more like a tow team what happens in the biggest of surf is generally you have um pairs of big wave surfers that do have that right bond. right and yeah right um, right and that's and that you know that kind of pair bond is, is is amazing right you know but it's it's actually different from a group like there's a it, it, it's its own particular dynamic i mean i mean in combat there are what are called battle buddies. So you're you're in a platoon, you're in a squad, you're in a team, and within the team, every man is paired off with one other man, and th and that's your that's your that's the guy on the jet ski for you, right? Like and vice versa, and and so it, it, it those relate those dyads are not antithetical to the to the group dynamic; they complement them. But what I would say with I'm blanking on his name, the guy that climbed El Capitan or some you know big wave big wave surfers is you gotta like the the dynamic where um my safety is not important compared to these 30 people that's a dynamic that reproduces our human evolution and and and, and as a result it's very profound and very meaningful and you can get that in modern safe wonderful modern american society when there's a when there's a disaster right so 9/11 produced that in new york city mm -hmm. hurricanes tornadoes like uh, i mean uh, i was uh I, my first, the first war that I covered was Bosnia in the early '90s. You know, a terrible, eth, you know, sort of ethnic conflict, and which eventually stopped in '95. But the ethnic divisions continued, and they're they're poisonous, right? I mean, the Serbs, the Croats, and the Bosniaks, the uh, Bosnian Muslims, absolutely poisonous and dangerous. 
Um, this one Bosnian woman I know who I interviewed for my book, Tribe, she said that the, she told me that the only time that those ethnic divisions um, were, 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 were um, diminished, were forgotten, was when there was catastrophic flooding in Bosnia. That, of course, flooding doesn't care what ethnic identity you have, right? And, and, and everyone had to sort of band together to survive this catastrophic flooding. And Serbs and Croats and Bosniaks were all you know, paddle, as it were, paddling the boats together in the floodwaters. And, and it was a blessed relief from these divisions. I mean, that's the power of sort of group, like the, the sort of group survival. And tragically, in some ways, tragically, we don't, we don't get that very often in this society because our technology has defeated almost every threat to our immediate safety. Yeah. When I was 26, my wife and I moved to a small town in Costa Rica, um, 12 miles from the closest paved road. And it had that sense. I mean, not to the extreme, but you were out there by yourself and it had, it was probably about a seven, 800 person community. You knew pretty much everyone. And that was the hardest thing about having to move back to the States when we had to move back in 2017 was you just didn't feel, it was very hard to feel like you belonged yeah. here yeah. after, yeah. you know, you'd walk down the street and you couldn't go somewhere without talking to 20 people along the way. Right. Uh, and here you walk by and you smile and in Florida people smile more than they do in New York, but <laughs> that's generally the extent of it. Uh, right. It felt so much healthier for the soul. Right. And, and you know, there you just had the experience I was referring to among Peace Corps volunteers. I mean, effectively, you know, you could have been a Peace Corps volunteer in that community and you would have come home and you would have had a 25 percent risk, statistically, 25 percent risk of falling into depression. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and which is about the risk that combat soldiers face when they come back from deployment. So going back to the term adrenaline junkie, which I also don't like, I think that it is a misconception that it's adrenaline that is addictive. I believe that it is the deep um, post-consciousness states or, or however you want to explain them, the flow states, which I also don't really love the term, but it seems to be the best that we currently have. And in your TED talk, you mentioned that, you know, you'd be scared before and you'd be scared after the fight, but not during the fight because you were just present. And that's that deep state that folks like me and, and probably Josh, I don't want to put him, you know, words in his mouth, but we've talked about it a lot, um, are, are chasing. Um, do you look, do you, do you notice the difference in those two states as well? Yeah. I mean, again, I think, I imagine it's adaptive. Um, you don't want to be burdened with emotions when you have to be high functioning mm -hmm. and you, you don't even want to be burdened with your sort of complex conscious mind. I mean, like sort of the, and I don't have my neurological terms down here, but um, the 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 sort of forebrain processing that's required for complex tasks is, is quite slow. And the more unconscious, subconscious or unconscious processes are extremely fast. And the, the amygdala is the, the center of the brain. It sort of deals with threat and threat, rea you know, reaction to threat is incredibly fast, right? So if you hear a sudden noise, you will find yourself in a crouch with your fists balled, balled up, your hands balled up in fists, uh, and you will blink before you have even consciously processed the loud noise. 
right? I mean, the react the amygdala triggers a reaction before your conscious brain can think, oh my God, that was really loud. That might be dangerous. I better get take cover. Like your you, your body's already taken care of, your amygdala is already taken care of that, that. So, so you know, I think when you're in a very complex dynamic situation that requires very, very just requires perfection, perfect movement, right? Um, there is a sort of elevated state that leaves your forebrain out of it and allows these sort of um, uh, these more primary processing powers to take over and control you. And musicians talk about that, mm -hmm. right? There's a sort of flow state that they can get into when they're improvising or when they're playing that, that puts, makes them more, it makes them better musicians than they generally are because they get their sort of forebrain out of it. They're not thinking through the music, right? Their, their fingers know what to do as it were. And the violin is playing them rather than the other way around. I mean, there's a lot of musicians have talked about this. Athletes talk about this, like my body just knew what to do. And um, that, you know, I think they're there. So when you put yourself in situations that require that require perfect action, your body takes over, your unconscious mind takes over and we, we and, and dumps this sort of like weird, brainy, slow moving, incredibly complex analytical forebrain that we have that we that we developed in the last six million years that allows for language, that allows for complex calculations, all this extraordinary stuff that humans do. It also slows us down, right? It gets in our way. And I like I know, you know, I'm so I at age 50, I started playing accordion and it's a really, you know, it's a hard instrument, right? And and you know, of course, when you're playing, you as a beginner, your your temptation is to look down and watch where your fingers are going to make sure they go in the right keys. The same is true of piano. And eventually you have to force yourself not to look down because you will start making more mistakes when you're looking down than when you're not. Like after a certain point, depriving your forebrain of all that in uh, of all that information actually allows you to play better and to make fewer mistakes and so i think that's there's something like that to the state you're talking about you know is it a yeah i mean adrenaline is a component of it but you know it's like there's i'm sure there's all these other neurochemicals associated with it that feel extremely good and one way i mean i'll sort of finish with this one way to know if something is adaptive in evolutionary terms is whether it feels good i mean the way evolution sort of quote gets us to do adaptive behaviors meaning that they'll increase our likelihood of survival and reproduction. One way evolution, quote, gets us to do those is by making those behaviors feel good. So when you're hungry, eating food feels good. Sex feels good. Participating in a group dynamic and facing a threat together where you lose your sense of self and have a sort of this incredible concern for everyone else, like that feels good. And there are people, and that feels good because it's adaptive. That's how evolution got us to do adaptive things that helped us survive. And the... Um, one of the really interesting things that I found when I was writing my book, Tribe, is that often after very traumatic events that required group collaboration for in order to survive, like the Blitz in London, mm -hmm. um, people would look back on those terrible days with real fondness and nostalgia. And um, that was true in Sarajevo after the war. I mean, Sarajevo, one-fifth of the population of the city, these are civilians, one-fifth were killed or wounded by snipers and artillery fire. One out of five people, men, women, children, everybody. And you know what? After the war, people said they missed it. It's because the meaningfulness, the profundity of group collaboration is so powerful, it gets people to actually 
forget how awful it was and focus on like, wow, those are the best days of my lives. Um, there's an amazing, I'll end with this. There's an amazing movie about World War II soldiers coming home. Uh, it's called The Best Years of Our Lives. And they're coming, and it's, it's a, there's not a war movie. It's about them coming home. It's a profound, it's black and white shot in the 50, early 50s, I think, right after the war. And I always, it's a, it's a classic movie. And I always thought that The Best Years of Our Lives was a sarcastic title. Like, they took the best years of our lives from us, right? And it's actually not sarcastic. They're literally like, no, no, no. The war, those are the best years of our lives. Now we have to come home and live the rest of our lives. And that's not because individually they were like dodging bullets. It's because collectively they were surviving. And that's the that's the human norm. It's the ancient human way. And it's one that our amazing society has sort of liberated slash deprived us of. That's a good segue into freedom, which I read in the last couple of weeks and loved. Thank you. Um, and it's an interesting thought, you know, like in, in my world, having lived in Costa Rica and States, Costa Rica and States, you know, 20 years, 10 years, um, five years now or whatever it is, the freedom that we had in Costa Rica was incredible. And one of your points in, in the book was that freedom comes with more consequence um, and there are definitely trade-offs for having that. But you look at a society like the United States where you know we live now and it coming back it just felt so boring you know you really missed the fact that you know there's a lot of crime where we lived and it's funny to say that i missed it but you know every once in a while you would hear things outside at night and sometimes it was people and sometimes it was animals but you'd be out there walking around and the sense of protecting your family yeah. um, even built our house in a way that there were levels of security as you came into the house because home invasion was a was a real thing um but then you know during the days it was very libertarian i'm you know i'd probably say that i'm somewhat libertarian i i like the take care of your friends take care of yourself you know try to take care of your community feeling but but no one's telling you what to do and then coming back here it feels very um i don't know it's just a very different thing but here i find that freedom in the ocean and downwind and getting offshore. But I think it's harder to find that here. Um, your book was about finding freedom, you know, <clears> on the <throat> walk that you did. And I watched The Last Patrol as well. You know, oh, thank everybody you. should watch you know, Restrepo. All your work's incredible, but Restrepo and The Last Patrol, which is probably lesser known, um, both great documentaries. Um, how do you look at trying to find freedom in a place like the United States? Well, yeah, I mean, so here's the basic human reality is that humans humans do not survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately in the tropics or the Arctic or whatever. We are we are we are, we are social primates. We survive in groups and we thrive in groups. We've dominated the world. But alone, virtually no one can survive, can you know, walk off into the Canadian wilderness with a, 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 a knife and a pack of matches, you know, come out a year later healthy and and sane like that that's it's not something that we're humans can do and so at the end of the day our survival depends on collaborating with the group and that means abiding by the group norms and uh 
you know, the group norms when I was in combat was you do not light a friggin' cigarette at night because the glow of the cigarette is something that the enemy can can see from quite far away and use to drop a mortar on the whole platoon. You cannot, it's selfish, you cannot do it, right? No, of course, there's no laws saying I can't smoke on a damn hilltop in Afghanistan. There's no laws, there's nothing. But there's the convention of the group. And it's because the group survival depends on everyone abiding by these norms. We can't drive on the left-hand side of the road in America, right? Because we'll kill somebody. And, uh, you know, we can, but we'll get arrested, sent to jail, whatever, as we should. So there, you know, there's great liberty in this country, political, legal freedom, but but within the uh, context of sort of minimum behaviors that keep everyone safe, okay? So what I looked at in the in the American frontier, like in Pennsylvania, the, the beyond Harrisburg was this sort in the 1700s was this sort of vast wilderness, what was called Indian Indian territory, right? You went in there at risk of your own life. You were completely free from government control. Like you wanted freedom, you got a flintlock rifle and a pair of like buckskin leggings and uh, you know, a powder horn and whatever, and you want to walk through the Juniata the Juniata Gap and up the Juniata River westwards into Pennsylvania, like you are free, but you're also in enormous danger. And so the early settlers in the 1750s, 1760s that trickled through the Harrisburg and on up the Juniata into the wilderness, the only way that they really could survive that was having a sort of mutual defense pact where all the people in one area were committed to collective defense during what were called Indian raids. Like, the, you know, every once in a while, the native peoples of the area that didn't want us, didn't want white people there would rise up and try to kill as many people as they could. And that was a very bloody time in both directions. So if you were part of that very, quote, free community, free from government oversight, government control, if you were part of that community, what you owe, what you owed your life to that community, right? If you weren't willing to defend the stockade against the Indians, you were not wanted in that community. And that, and literally, that meant that if you were an, a, a male over the age of, say, I think 14, you had to be armed at all times, which meant a scalping knife, a tomahawk, what they call the scalping knife, a tomahawk, and a, and a, and a firearm, right? At all times, just in case they were needed. And if you were not willing to sort of do that, you were not wanted in that community. So you you gained freedom from the government, but then it you were just switching allegiance, right? So but you had you had you had very, very serious commitments to the say hundred people in your area who would be defending themselves to the last if there was a serious attack by the native peoples. And so what you know what I would just all that to say that like American society has figured out how do not require collective action for survival? We no longer require that, right? Because we have a police force, we have a fire department, we got the army, we got the government building roads, they charge taxes for that, you know, it's all sort of taken care of, right? So we are enormously free in our daily lives, but you have to understand that that is only true because your survival needs have been taken care of by the, um, uh, by the vast economic and military cultural system that we're embedded in and is it a good deal i think it probably is but you just you just have to acknowledge that I mean, that that said when you if you want to experience freedom in the context of the modern nanny state essentially nanny state that takes care of all of us if you want to experience freedom i'm guessing what that means is you have to put yourself in situations where you're beyond help 
where your survival depends on you. And, you know, is that a smart thing to do? You know, in some ways, psychologically, it's pretty interesting experience that many people might need in order to feel like they're leading serious, meaningful lives. Um, could you get killed out there? And would that be a goddamn waste? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't, there's no way to get complete safety and complete freedom. Like you're not, it's not happening, right? It really is on a continuum. And the and the safer you are, the less free you are, and the more risk you're willing to undertake, um, the more free you're going to be. And and uh, uh, I'm sorry, did I just say that the, the safer you are, the less free you are, the more risk you take, the more freedom you have access to. Uh, and the end of the day, if you walk into the Canadian wilderness with a knife and a pack of matches, you are unbelievably free. But it's going to be a tough year. In foiling right now, and so I don't know how much you know about foil surfing, how much you've talked to Josh about it, but there is one um, trend in the sport where you can actually catch waves well offshore. So paddling out on big boards, half mile, mile into the ocean in small groups or solo and you can catch unbroken waves and then ride them for miles and miles down the coast. And it is massively growing in popularity right now. And I think part of the attraction to it is that you are on like a, a, a real adventure. You know, there's not a lot of safety. I mean, even if you go out with people, by the time you're up because of the speeds and how hard it is to get up, you generally won't see anyone for miles and maybe it's an hour some folks in australia some friends just did a 80 kilometer open ocean run um and yeah. i think that part of the attraction to that i mean i'm absolutely it's all given the choice it's what i'd like to do on most days i think part of the attraction is there's not a lot of adventures um that you can take in in a short period of time uh you know living where i live and it, there's something that's so much more fulfilling when you come in from one of those runs than just going for a surf in in a group you know kind of like at your local beach break it feels like you've accomplished something when you get back to the beach yeah i i, I mean i i can see that i mean that i mean i think the lure of the of the wilderness um and i include the deep ocean as wilderness anything offshore uh the, the lure is that your your un, your survival is is up to you, and there, therefore you're 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 alive because of yourself, and you know that's been true for most of human history until you know the industrial revolution. Um, the um, Latin origins for the word adventure said adventure uh, um, are something. I'm going by memory here. Something like what will happen. In other words, you don't like you don't know what will happen. God does. I'm use God metaphorically. I'm an atheist, but God, you know, sort of God does. You know, whatever will happen will happen. I mean, that's what an adventure is. If you control the outcome, it's not an adventure. It's a it's a ride in an amusement park, right, or whatever, which is all fine. Um, I so there's in physics there's something called the Higgs boson, which is a particle. It's not very well understood, but it gives mass to matter, right? It gives weight. It, it gives weight to 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 matter to atoms, right? And without weight, without mass, there would be no existence. Nothing would adhere. No, nothing would cohere. There would be no possible anything, right? So the, everything everything comes down to the Higgs boson doing its thing, and it's not well understood, but it basically it's what gives weight to existence, and that therefore gravity and blah blah blah, right? So I had this idea that 
the thing that gives um, meaning to our experiences is consequence. And experiences that have low consequences have low meaning. So you play around, I don't play golf, but whatever, pleasant enough looking game. You play around a golf, very low consequences, right? No one, unless you have a heart attack because you're overweight walking around a golf course, you know, very low consequences to the game of golf. So low meaning, right? But it's very, very pleasant. Things with, with high meaning have high consequences, even life and death. And so when you put yourself, not in God's hands, but in your own hands, offshore, or free soloing El Capitan, or, or, or whatever, or combat, um, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're creating meaning through consequence. And like the Higgs boson creates weight for matter. And, um, you know, I, my, um, my first, the first job that I loved was I was, I was a climber for tree companies. I was arborist and I did all the aerial work. So I'd be up in a tree, 50, 60, 100 even feet in the air, hanging on a line on a rope with a chainsaw clip to my belt, taking trees down in pieces. I topped them out, limbed them out. You know, I could drop a tree in its own footprint, right? I mean, if you have a big tree in a backyard, in a small backyard, how do you get it down without crushing the garage, the house or whatever? Like this is residential tree work. Well, you take it down in pieces from the top down. And if you can't get a crane in there, you get me in there. And that was my job. And I realized, you know, enormously dangerous, right? If you make a mistake, I mean, you're falling from 100 feet. The chainsaw is super dangerous. I cut myself with, I mean, I tore my leg up with it. Like a lot of ways to get killed up there. But what I realized is that, the, and it was and as, as a result, it was very, very meaningful. The thing I really liked about it was that there was no random, there was no random danger, right? If I got killed up there, it's because I killed myself. I made a mistake. It's all the laws of physics, right? When you top a tree out, it's obeying the laws of physics. And if it does something unexpected, it's because you failed to understand the laws of physics properly, well enough to keep yourself safe. If you fell because you tied a shitty knot, like you tied the knot. Nobody else did. You made a mistake. You blew it. It's very much like losing a chess game. You don't lose a chess game because you rolled the wrong numbers on the dice or drew the wrong card, right? Uh, you lost a chess game because you lost the chess game. Like you made a series of mistakes that resulted in you losing. Well, likewise with tree work. Like I love the fact that my fate was completely in my hands. And if I got down to the grounds alive, it was because I did that. I did not make a mistake. I did my job perfectly. And uh, and that made me, that gave me a tremendous sense of agency, a tremendous sense of, of meaning. When you take risk where there's a random element, and, you know, you drive down the street, there's a random element. I mean, someone T-bones you at a stop sign where they should have stopped. That's not your fault, right? Combat, there's a lot of stuff that's not your fault. You know, it's like this. a lot of it's out of your hands. And that becomes, for me, becomes really terrifying. And But the danger that I have undertaken, uh, say, doing tree work, there was something about it was just this Zen thing because it was all on me. And the fact that I got to keep living because I did everything perfectly was totally intoxicating. You know, I think, you know, in sort of like big wave surfing, there's obviously there's enough sort of gray area. Not all the variables are known or knowable. And so so there's a sort of gray area in what can happen in 60 foot surf. And I'm sorry, you know, like you're, you're, you're gambling and the gamble may be worth it for you. I'm no longer of an age where the, that gamble is worth it for me. Like I'm not I'm not interested and um, but I still do tree work.
you know, for friends, like I'll still, because I, I'm, in, I'm in control of the consequences. What other ways do you seek that same level of experience now? Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't seek risk. I avoid it. I, I would say the tree work isn't risk because I, I, I know how to not make mistakes. And I'd rather be a hundred feet in a tree than 10 feet on a ladder. Cause I feel like on a ladder, there are variables, you know, there are things that can happen. It's an unstable medium. Like, you know, like I won't, I, I basically will not go on ladders. And, uh, um, but, um, so, but if you're asking what other ways do I seek meaningful experience, uh, I do, I no longer do it through a risk-taking, right? I mean, I was a combat reporter. I mean, the, one of the attractions to it was that it was risky. That, that, that wasn't even a sort of negative thing, like, oh, I'm a combat reporter, even though it's risky. Uh, no, I'm a combat reporter because it's risky. There's something I need to find out about myself, about my sort of manhood, about, you know, whatever it is, like, that's a whole other conversation that I feel like I can only find out in combat. So off I off I go. Right. My dad was a refugee from two wars like war was a, very much a part of my family's experience. I wanted to understand it better. I have all these other explanations for my career. But one of it was I wanted to see how I would do. I wanted to see how I would react in danger. And uh, when I was in danger with others in combat, like how would I do? And and uh, um, so now what do I, at age 61, what, how, what, where do I get my sense of, of meaning and wonderment and uh, thrill? I, you know, I get it from being a, a dad. I mean, I get it with my children. I get it from music. <clears throat> I, uh, I get it from athletics. Um, you know, I, I was a pretty good long distance runner when I was young. I ran a 221 marathon or 12 mile, like not Olympic level, but I was pretty good. And then, you know, later in my life, I started boxing. Um, incredible, incredible discipline, like an incredible practice. Um, very, very meaningful and incredibly hard, right? And, um, you know, so I, like that's where I get it from. I, would I be doing all that at 25? No, I'd be out trying to impress girls and running around war zones. Like what? Yeah, of course I would be. I mean, you know, like that's, that, but doing that right now would be pathetic. You've mentioned a few times through the show that you're an atheist. And did that come into question at all when you had your daughters? Because I know for me, I was probably pretty agnostic going into having children and then became fairly spiritual afterwards, I would say. I mean, I just, there was something about that process that made me think about the fact there's probably something else. It's just too magical. Did that question arise for you? Do you have any dialogue internally around that? Uh, not really. I mean, I think there, there is, it is magical and it does feel like there's something more and all that stuff. I just don't, it, uh, I, I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that God's the culprit for that, right? Like, why, why, I mean, why, I, I, it just, why invent God to explain something that I'm experiencing, you know, like in my life, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm like, I can explain my feelings for my children perfectly adequately through my feelings for my children. Like, I love them. They're my, you know, like, I, I mean, I don't need God to sort of like explain that experience. Um, as an anthropologist, that kind of love and devotion is entirely adaptive. So I can put on my scientist hat and say, yeah, well, this makes sense. Our ancestors who love their children were more likely to have their genes be passed on to the future than the ones who didn't. So here we are. We love our children like that you know, horses don't love their children, right? I mean, you know, we're complex social 
creatures. And so we need that. We we give birth to young who are completely helpless for the first, what, five, six, seven years, right? That's not true for horses. So horses don't need to love their children. And neither do fish, right? But humans do because our children, our, our young are so vulnerable, which allows them this incredible cerebral development that they couldn't have if they were born fully formed like the, I mean the head just would never get through the cervix right so so now the, the trade-off is that we have completely helpless children that we have to raise to age six or seven at least it's incredibly hard thing to do and if you don't feel a whole lot of love for these these for these little creatures you're probably not going to do it and they're going to die so like that's the evolutionary explanation for all that um I almost um I mean the closest I came to um believing in religion or seeing a uh an advantage I wouldn't even say believing in religion seeing an advantage to believing in religion was I a couple of years ago I almost died from a sort of freak medical occurrence I had a, a undiagnosed aneurysm a ballooning in my uh in a small artery in my abdomen and um asymptomatic unrelated to any health issue I mean I'm healthy I had nothing to do with cholesterol or anything else I'm super healthy it was just a freak a freak thing and it ruptured and I bled out into my own abdomen uh and I, it took an hour and a half to get to the hospital and I was on the threshold of death I mean I'm, I have memories of dying um and they barely brought me back and the last thing I said to the doctor was you got to hurry um you're losing me right now I'm going and they 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 managed to do it and um you know, after that, I was ex I was extremely traumatized by that. And uh, um, after that, I I um, I was really searching for a way to comfort myself in a in a in a life in a universe that seemed like it it could strike you down, even on a beautiful June afternoon, while you're talking, you know, while you're talking to your wife. Like, and all of a sudden I felt the pain in my abdomen and I was dying and it went from one moment to the next. And that's all of us. And and we don't live, we don't, most of us don't live our lives with that knowledge. And I was suddenly given that knowledge because I lived it, I survived it. And um, that was extremely hard, way, way harder than anything I've been in in combat. And, um, and it's sort of random cruelty. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, I start. I, I was like, well, I wonder if going to church would just make me feel better, you know. And the wonderful thing about church, and I don't go to church, but the wonderful thing about it is, you don't need to go, believe in God to go to church. I mean, church is a building filled with people. That's all church is. And if you want to go there and interact with it on that level, there's nice music, there's nice words, everyone smiles. Like, it's all this human nourishment in church that does not require you believe in God. That's this whole other thing. And you want to sign up for that, go for it. Like that doesn't interest me. Um, but what I needed was a sort of comforting community. And uh, you know, I didn't go on to do that. But it but it was interesting to watch the thought cross my mind. Wow, telling that story, it made me think about this difference between fear and risk. You know, you've been in a lot of really heavy situations in your life where you've probably experienced a good amount of fear but yep. probably the riskiest thing of your life, you're talking to your wife and had no idea that that was about to happen. And that's one of the things that, I mean, as someone who has coached lots of people in the water and also just helped, you know, 
my wife had a massive brain tumor and was as happy as she could possibly be, you know, the day that we found it. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about just how we navigate fear and risk and realizing that some of the things that are possibly the, the scariest, we just have no, 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 no forethought to her. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the times I've come closest to dying were in situations where uh, that were had such a low risk threat level that I wasn't even really thinking about it much. My aneurysm, I almost drowned when I was sur- surfing, actually, when I was uh, in January on Cape Cod, I was trying to winter surf. I'd surfed my whole life and as from a kid. And uh, I'd never surfed in the winter before. And I got a winter wetsuit and a big swell came in and uh, I was by myself. I mean, I was the only person on the beach, much less in the water. And, um, you know, you can't hold your breath as long when the water's really, really cold. I didn't know that. And I just big, big, huge wave came in and just drove me to the bottom and wouldn't let me up. And I and I almost, almost lost consciousness. I barely and no one there was no one around to help me. I was way, way out. I mean, I was dead. You know, and I barely survived it. I wasn't thinking that, you know, that morning I wasn't, I surfed, I'd surfed that beach my whole life. I wasn't thinking that my life was on the line when I, when I was waxing my board that morning. Like, are you kidding? It was a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday, right? You know, I had a sink full of dirty dishes. I mean, I was like totally ordinary life, right? And then, and likewise in combat, I mean, the times I were like, oh shit, that was really close. I never, um, I would never in a, those were never situations where beforehand I was like, wow, this is going to be dicey. Like, I hope this goes okay. I'm not, this is still, well, I hope this is all right. No, no, no. These are almost invariably were situations where I was barely thinking about it. Yeah. Um, going back to tribe, you know, I, I talked about like what just happened to my wife. Something that was very interesting was that when we had to move back to the states i was living in a place where i was as tapped in surfing five six hours a day um that was kind of the world and over the few months ahead of time before that i became really good friends with uh two uh one seal uh seal team um guy william who's who's been on the podcast before um brilliant dude taught at sniper school and another friend who I, I won't mention, but he was also very high up in in those. And when I came back, it, it was a really interesting thing because everyone was calling to check in to see, you know, how Sarah was doing um, all the time, which was incredibly meaningful for the family. But William and my other friend were calling to check in to see how I was doing. And it was a very stark difference really between the calls that were coming in. It's something that they had experienced, I guess, leaving. They had both retired. Um, at this point. Uh, and I think that the difficulty that they had coming back, they realized that me being pulled out of what I was truly passionate about um, was going to be very difficult. And it was just when I reread Tribe in the last couple of weeks, I didn't put that together the first time that I read it. It was kind of in the midst of all of this. I read it trying to navigate the move back. And when I reread it this time, that jumped out. And I thought it was worth mentioning just as a thank you to those guys, but also just kind of does that sound normal for for what you have seen as well like um that level of of outreach for people going through those situations well yeah i mean the 
I, I would say it's, I'm guessing that those guys have experienced and seen the consequences for others of, of misfortune for one person. So one person gets wounded or killed and the consequences ripple out throughout the team, throughout the platoon. Uh, and so that I think that there's just a sort of an awareness that the person that there's more than one person in danger when something bad happens. There's the psychological consequences for everyone else, which at least in the context, I don't know, medical medical emergency is a different thing, but certainly in the con context of combat, those psychological consequences that visit other people, the survivors, can be um, quite severe and uh, and include survivor, survivor guilt, which is a killer. I mean, survival guilt, you know, will will get people to put a gun in their mouth, right? I mean, it's a really, really dangerous feeling to have. And um, and it's extremely common. And so, you know, when they're reaching out to say, hey, how are you? you okay, glad Sarah, I think your wife's name is, right? Glad Sarah's, glad to hear Sarah's stable. How are you? Like, is there, they understand that connection and how the, the, the kind of danger the other, the other people can be from, the event and you know my my one of my very best friends and my colleague that i made my documentary restrepo with and i was out in afghanistan with him with this platoon off and on for a year we were we were brothers you know i mean in and and um and he got killed in in libya during covering the civil war um on a, an assignment i was supposed to be on in the last moment i couldn't go and he went off on his own and he got, took some shrapnel in his groin and he bled out back of a rebel pickup truck racing for the misrata hospital he didn't make it and um i really spiraled after that i spiraled because i convinced myself it was my fault it should have been me not him i should have been there to help him to protect him what well, like i mean i made it all my fault and i was six thousand miles away and um it was a psychologically very dangerous state like i caught myself thinking man he's the lucky one like he doesn't have to go through the rest of this shit, and I do. Like he got, he got, he got to step off the train before things got bad. And now I'm 50, and I got, I got another 20, 30 years, and this is going to be miserable. And damn, how did he get so lucky? And I have to go through, I have to go through with all this. I was really depressed. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just guessing that those guys, the thing that they were sort of keying off of is the danger of survival guilt and how it can affect. How it can affect other people. Wow. And that's the last patrol was the story of the trip that you and Tim were gonna take and talking about his memory as you Yeah. Yeah, I and I I, I can't remember if I said his name. Tim Hetherington is his name, and he was a, a brilliant photographer photographer, wonderful person, and and he was my partner making Restrepo and and uh yeah, so we were gonna. I eventually did this with a few other guys, but uh, we were gonna walk along the railroad lines from D.C. to Philadelphia, and then turn west and go to Pittsburgh. And uh, and I eventually did this with two or three other guys, a couple of whom were you know combat veterans and another journalist. And we we called it high speed vagrancy, and we were you know it's totally illegal. And the we chose the railroad lines because they're these sort of strips of no man's land. That are really not monitored by society or by the police and it's, it's you know it's sort of wild west almost like i mean you can do whatever we were sleeping under bridges 
and cooking over fires and moving 10 or 20 miles a day, carrying everything we needed. And when we ran out of food, we'd walk into town and get food and go back out to the railroad lines. And, you know, we were dodging the freight trains and the Amtraks, you know, like we, you know, we had to stay out of sight because people, the, the, the engineers would call, call the cops on us. Like they'd call in the cops and the cops would come looking for us. Like at one point they were looking for us in a help with a helicopter and they still didn't find us. Like we were pretty good at evasion. And so we, you know, we moved 400 miles like that and uh, it was an absolutely extraordinary trip. And yeah, so the movie, I, the documentary I made about it is called the last patrol. We brought a videographer with us who was really part of our group and we documented it. Well, I know you have a hard stop right now, Sebastian, and just want to give you the floor for any closing thoughts. Um, I, you know, I'll just, I think I'll end with this. I mean, uh, it, we live in this amazing society, amazing in virtually every way, except that it doesn't require any kind of communal participation, right? That's the only thing, the only thing about it that is, um, just enduringly, endlessly bad and unhealthy and creates real problems for people. And, uh, um, and I, there, people ask me, well, how can I feel like I'm part of something greater, part of something bigger in the society that doesn't seem to need my help? Like if you were an Apache in 1860, the, the other people in your band would need your help, right? That's it was, It's obvious. What do you do in a nation of a wealthy nation of 400, almost 400 million people, mechanized, highly technological? What do you, you know, what does it need you for? It need doesn't need you for anything. And that's a dangerous feeling to feel unused, unutilized, unneeded, unnecessary is very, very dangerous and psychologically. So my answer is, your nation does actually need you in small but very, very significant ways. Um, you need to vote. Your nation needs you to vote in order to have a um, a civil and a fair and a righteous society. You have to vote. And you must serve jury duty. You can get out of it if you really want. Please don't. Um, it's Jury duty is the only thing really keeping us from a kind of tyranny. It's the only thing keeping us from a society where one person can decide the fate of another. But in this society, no small town sheriff, no judge, no president, no union leader, no corporate leader, no nobody can decide the fate of another person. Only a group of peers can. You must serve. And finally, <clears throat> uh, donate blood. Like I was, my life was saved. My little girls will have a father because 10 people went to a blood bank and sat there for 15 minutes and donated a pint of blood. And because of those 10 people, who I'll never know I'm alive. And you're going to need that blood. You're going to need someone's blood someday, almost for sure. And that means other people need your blood. And the great thing about blood is it doesn't care, it doesn't care about all the stupid shit that this society seems to care about. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, right? And it is what a wonderful way of, of, of instilling in us the virtue and the, and the awareness that we are really all in this together and we need each other. And God forbid we ever lose sight of that. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you, Sebastian, for coming on the show. Um, 
And thanks, Josh, for the intro. Yeah, uh, say hi to him for me. I, I don't get to see him often enough since he's moved down down to Costa Rica. But um, yeah, it was a real pleasure talking to you and good luck and, and be safe out there. Deconstructing Foiling, Flow, and the Learning Process with your host, Eric Antonson.